0: In your dealing with John the Mercer, we learn much of how you may deal with us in time of our trial. At the same time, we learn from you the incredibly timely truth of what you value in a servant, in a leader. Give us humble hearts to hear and heed today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know when you find a great restaurant, you don't just go once. You go once and you have a steak, and then you come back next time for the seafood, and then maybe a third time for the Mexican, Mexican's always good, maybe a fourth time for a hamburger. But you keep coming back, and this section is like that. We've gone over verses 1 through 11, mostly looking at the first part. We're going to go again and look from a a different angle and maybe stress more the second part, because there's much in this section for us that is very, very timely to us. You needn't be a prophet to tell that the times we live in today are very trying times. One of the things that I've noted in, in last years is that people who have put themselves forth as leaders have imploded. They've set themselves on fire. They've crashed and burned. They presented themselves as Rock ribbed, steely spined, flint eyed leaders of unshakable principle, and then a fad comes along and they go running off. Squirrel, you know, they just chase everything that comes along and absolutely be clown themselves. It's very disheartening, especially if it, it's someone you looked up to, someone you thought you could trust, someone whose lead you thought you could follow. Wouldn't it be great to know what Christ values in a leader? well, that's exactly what this section shows us, among other things. It speaks directly to that. And I'd like to bring up and, 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 and develop something I said last week. I, I talked about the fact that it's very common for people to feel. I'm sure you felt it as have I. that it, it, you, you read a promise in the Bible, and you absolutely think it's wonderful, but you think it would be so great if God were just standing there saying that to you personally. And I asked you, what do you think the Bible is? Let me say a little bit more about that. Remember, the Bible is the product of an infinite mind. The Spirit of God who led these writers to write this is a God of infinite intelligence. And what does it mean to have an infinite mind? It means that you're thinking everything at the same time. You know everything at the same time. And so, in terms of practical application, it means that when the Holy Spirit led David, led Paul to write things, led the Lord Jesus to preach things, he was thinking of you and of me, Christian brother, Christian sister. You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. God can do that. He has an infinite mind. So when we read these words addressed to believers, it is God standing here saying this to us. And so this section is just such a section as we see how Christ deals with a leader who is going through a rough trial. We will learn from that at what Christ thinks is a great leader, which is very uh, important to us because each of us leads in some sphere, but we also learn how Christ deals with somebody who's going through a time of trial, and that will teach us how he deals with our soul in times of trial as well. So let's look first together the first six verses, the trials of a godly leader. Verses 1-6, through the trials of a godly leader. And first note, letter A, what he suffers, verses 1 through 3. I translate for you. And it happened when Jesus finished directing his 12 disciples. He moved on from there to teach and proclaim in their cities. But when John heard in prison the works of the Christ, every word of this verse is so fraught with meaning, but when John heard in prison the works of the Christ, he sent a question through his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is coming, or shall we await a different person? Well, first together, number one, I would like you simply to note the bare fact that John has a trial. That's the first point, number one. Simply note just that bare fact that John, John, John the prophet, John the immerser, John the messenger sent in the presence of the Lord, he has a trial. And particularly put this in light of verses 7 through 11, which we just read together, where Jesus says no greater person has ever been born than John. Where Jesus says, having heard this question from John, Jesus says that he is a prophet and more than a prophet. Jesus speaks in great praise of him. And and so if the the sections were reversed, you might say, well, would Jesus say that if he knew that John was going through this trial? Ah, but he says this after he hears this question. So despite the fact that John is going through a trial. Jesus speaks in this glowing way. That's something to keep in mind. The fact that John has a trial does not shake Jesus' love for him or Jesus' view of him because everybody has trials. Everybody has trials, and in God's hand, they're a good thing. Look at James chapter 1. Remind yourself of these words. After Hebrews, first book after Hebrews, before Revelation, book of James. You would chuckle if you looked over my shoulder because I don't multitask well, so while I'm telling you where it is, I'm flipping all over the place, so I have to stop talking in order to find it. James, chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus' half-brother writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. That means make a deliberate mental decision that you will assess this as being a matter of pure joy. Of pure joy. That's the meaning of this phrase. When you... Notice he doesn't say, if you. (laughs) He doesn't say, if you. On the odd chance, on the unlikely circumstance that you meet trials. No, he says when. Because it's going to happen. When it happens, count it as a joy. Why? Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Without that, it's just book faith. It's just something learned in the classroom. It's trial that translates it to life and produces endurance or steadfastness and let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Everyone is going to endure a trial and that in itself is not A black mark, that in itself is not a demerit. It's not a bad thing. It means that you're a believer because believers will endure trials. So says Jesus' half-brother. So says the Bible all over the place. The apostles say through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus says in the world you have tribulations. So this is simply the life of a believer and that John is undergoing a trial is not a demerit to him. It's not a bad reflection on his character. But does anyone think here that a leader really shouldn't have trials? Leaders should never really have difficulties. They should never really have things that knock them on their seat, that knock them for a loop, things that make them stagger, things that are difficult for them. Is that what anyone here thinks? Well, if so, you've got a challenging passage here. Because here's John who's going through one, and Jesus immediately praises him pretty literally to the high heavens. Let me describe a a pastor to you. Tell me if you think this person could ever be a a leader of any fruitfulness. This man, well, for one thing, he has physical ills. He has physical ills so serious and frequent that he often has to miss preaching because of his physical ills. He has to take time off uh, because of his physical difficulties. And not only that... But he has emotional or spiritual ills. He he he's given to depression. He's given to a downcast spirit. And and what's more, he's open about it. He actually he's in a ministry where people don't talk about such things, but he does. He tells everybody the fact that he undergoes frightful times of depression and downcast spirit. And on top of all this, wherever he goes, he seems to make enemies and doesn't care. He makes enemies, he takes a stand. People criticize him, people break off from him publicly, and he just holds to that position and doesn't alter. Could a man like that ever be effective or of any use? Well, if you say no, you've just defrocked Charles Spurgeon, who I think had a rather fruitful ministry. Would you agree? Yes, over a century later, he being dead yet speaketh, and speaketh very fruitfully, Martin Luther was another one who knew trials and who knew depression of spirit and and he knew serious persecution and difficulties. Listen to what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said. He said, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I'd like to know that. I have practiced this message myself. And he says there are three rules. What are the three rules? First, I'll give you the Latin words, then I'll translate them, because he says it in Latin. The three rules are oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. And what that means, oratio means prayer. Okay, Meditatio means meditation. Think about what you study. The third is tentatio, which means temptation. It means trial. It means difficulty. You want to be a great theologian, he says, pray, meditate, and go through trials. So not only not a problem, but it is a qualifier. It is somebody who makes a leader. It is something that makes a leader a leader. And that John suffers a trial obviously doesn't shake Jesus' love for him or his estimation of him. Second, remember why John had a trial. Now, I won't re-preach what we looked at last week. We saw that it it most certainly is. John's trial, Jesus sends the disciples back and says, tell John. It's his question. It's not some pretend way of getting an answer for his disciples. Uh, He's going through an issue. He's going through a trial because, remember, what did he preach? He would preached that Messiah would come and he would baptize the enemies of God with fire. Had anyone been baptized with fire yet? No. He would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. Had his followers been baptized with the Holy Spirit yet? No. The axe would be at the root of the tree, cutting down the false leaders and and, and, um, uh, institution. Had that happened yet? No, that had not happened yet. The kingdom of heaven, he said, was at hand. Had it come yet? No, it didn't come. So, back to verse 2. Where is he? In prison. And what does Matthew say he's hearing He's hearing the works of Christ, which means Messiah. But, but what kind of works are these? They are surely magnificent works, but they're not works of judgment. They're not works of conquest. And this is something John knew from Scripture would come and Messiah would bring. And it was not an academic issue to him. He's in prison. Why is he in prison? So he asked Jesus, are you, are you the coming one or should we look for another. Remember, by the way, this is not the first time that John has been kind of baffled by Jesus. What was the first time? It was also in chapter 3 when Jesus, John's baptizing repentant sinners, baptizing repentant sinners. Here comes this guy and it's Jesus. And he says, no, no, no. You baptize me. I don't baptize you. And what does Jesus say? Permit it for this time. It's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what does John do? He does what Jesus says. But his first reaction was, yikes. That's the literal Greek. Yikes. You want me to baptize you? But he does. And so likewise here, he says another kind of yikes, but he puts it to Jesus so he can hear the answer. I'll talk more about that in just a second. But just notice, remember, this is why John had a trial. He had not read the whole New Testament. He doesn't know how things will turn out. He's in the prison part of the story and is going to lose his head in prison. So it's an issue to him. It's his trial. And if we read the Bible like a comic book, and he's a cartoon character, one-dimensional, we can't see that, we miss something very important. Third, notice and learn from how John handles his trial, and this is everything. How does John handle this trial? Well, he doesn't say, phew, here's my door out. I was looking for a, a, a way to, to leave this, to get the pressure off myself. Uh, haven't you seen that sometimes when you've read some of the statement of somebody who was raised in a Christian home and now turns his back on his faith, or somebody who was a, a preacher or, or a, a contemporary Christian music person and has decided that, that he, she can no longer be a Christian. And you read the reason and you go, That? <laughs> That? A well-taught Sunday school student could have answered that. My kid could have answered that, you say. Oh, but you know the thing is, that person was looking for a door. That person wanted out. He wanted something God wasn't giving him. He wanted something God said he couldn't have. He just wanted to be his own person, be famous, and he found a door. It sounded good, and he ran for it. But John doesn't do that. John doesn't do that. And John doesn't say, well, things aren't going my way, so I'm done. And again, many times you read supposed ex-Christian's words and they're just like that. I, I was in this situation, I prayed, God didn't do what I thought he should, so I'm out. God's not doing what John thinks he should in the time that he thinks he should, or at least he doesn't understand what he's doing. But he's not out. He's not looking for a way out. He's looking for a way forward. And that's what he does. What he does, in effect, is he says, Jesus I'm stuck with this. What do I do with this? What do I do with this? He goes to Jesus about it. This is how he handles it. He goes to Jesus to hear the word of Jesus, and he will accept the word of Jesus. But that's where he goes, because he wants to walk with God. He wants to serve God. And he's come to a dark place. Well, from that, then let's turn and lift our eyes to see Christ's uh, what Christ does for him, letter B, how Christ sustains. We're talking about the trials of a godly leader. We've seen what he, the godly leader, suffers. Now, letter B, we're talking about how Christ sustains. And what does Christ do to sustain John? First, he sustains with rugged help, verses 4 and 5, with rugged help. And Jesus in answer said to them, go and report to John what things you're hearing and seeing. Blind people are seeing again and crippled are walking. Lepers are being cleansed and deaf people are hearing. Dead people are being raised and poor people are being told the good news. So you see, the way Jesus deals with John, and so the way we might expect Jesus will deal with us, is not primarily sentimental. It's not primarily emotional. You see, don't you, that Jesus' primary concern is not to make John feel better. Now, if John embraces what Jesus says, the result will be that he feels better. But he doesn't go straight for an emotional lift. He speaks the truth to John that John needs to hear. And that's what I want to focus on now with you. This is exactly what John needs. It may not be what we would have said to John. It is what Jesus said to John. I say that it's rugged help. It's not emotional, not sentimental. doesn't even express sympathy for his situation in these words. What does he say in effect? We talked about it last week. What does he say? You already know the answer to your question. You need to think about what the Bible says and what you know. Isn't that what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. Remember, he's quoting snippets of Scripture. And, and what that means when we see often in the New Testament that a part of Scripture is, is quoted or alluded to, the reference is to the whole part. Like if I might say to you, well, after all, you should, we should have confidence because we know the Lord is our shepherd. And that's all I say. But what am I alluding to when I say the Lord is our shepherd? Psalm 23. Well, plug it all in. Because that's all what I'm saying. I'm just not saying it all. I'm alluding to it. You know enough to know what I'm alluding to. And so when Jesus alludes to these passages, he's, he's alluding to the chapters. He's alluding to the book. Everything that scripture says. He's reminding John, just you already know the answer. You know what scripture says. You know what you're saying. You need to think about that. And then he says, and don't be tripped up. I'll talk about that in a second. Now, I, I want to talk about this with you. Listen to me closely here. I would not recommend that this be the way we deal with other people first. I wouldn't recommend that if you know somebody who's discouraged or downcast that the first thing to do is to say you already know the answer or just think about what the Bible says. I I don't think we should do that with other people, but keep listening to me here. I think it is the first thing that we should do with ourselves. Now, the first thing we should do with somebody else is probably like Paul says, weep with those who weep. Express sympathy, be with. I mean, we could talk about that a long time. But in dealing with ourselves, this is the first thing we should do. We should say to ourselves, believe what you already believe. Think about what the Word of God says about this. What does the Word of God say about this? Are you a Christian? Believe that. Embrace that. Rest on that. You know, we need to preach a good sermon to ourselves. To ourselves. This is something we learn from Scripture. You see it in Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God for you will yet praise him. You will again praise him, the psalmist says. Preaching to himself. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. You will again praise him. The salvation of your continents and your God. This is what we need to do with ourselves. We need to preach the word of God to ourselves and deal with our. because this is how we see Jesus deals. And, and I would also have you notice, would you say that John is a spiritual giant? I'd say John's a spiritual giant. But do you see that the solution to his problem is really fundamentally fairly simple? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, don't you often find that that's the case? It's very complicated in your mind, but when you get to Scripture and you look at Scripture, it often boils down to something very simple like, okay, so do you trust God or not? Can I get an amen? It is often exactly that, but we are all so drowned in our own subjectivity and our emotions, and they just get us swirling in, around that drain, and we need to grab onto the Word of God and preach a good sermon to ourselves and listen to it. And that's what Jesus does with John. That's exactly what Jesus does with John. And so we should not misinterpret it if Jesus does something like that with us. If we're in despair and we go to Jesus for help and he doesn't just make us feel better. That if there's a silence, you hear in that silence, go, read, look at God's word, remember, believe, rest on it, embrace it. So he offers him rugged help Second, he sustains with bracing, hope. A hope that puts spine in him and gives him strength. Verse 6, And blessed is he who is not tripped up over me. Now, we should notice and not hurry past, when Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not, is not tripped up over me, he's acknowledging he's something to trip over. He's acknowledging that he has jagged edges. He's acknowledging that he's difficult. He's acknowledging that following him is a difficult process in this world. This world is not a friend to grace. This world does not love God and it's not gotten better since Jesus walked on it. And so it's difficult. As we'll look at it in some detail in just a moment or two. But he knows it. Uh, and so what he says, though, is blessed he is he who is not tripped over me. He knows he has things that will trip people up if they let them. Look, if you believe in an inoffensive Christ or if you preach an inoffensive Christ it's not this Christ it's not the Jesus of scripture the Jesus of scripture made people furious to a murderous rage and you listen to the Jesus some people preach of who just goes around hugging people and telling them whatever they want they should get and you wonder how could anybody get mad at that i don't know i don't know cuz that fellow never existed <laughs> But the real Jesus offended everybody where, well, not everybody, that's an exaggeration, but he caused offense wherever he went for people who did not want God's way or seek God's kingdom sincerely in faith. So the Christ who saves is a Christ who has sharp edges, the Christ who saves is a Christ who offends. That's this Jesus. But what he says is, blessed is the one who doesn't, isn't tripped up over me. So what, what, what is the specific application here? Well, as we talked about last week, everything John wanted was, was good. Everything he wanted was biblical. Jesus didn't disagree with any of it, as a matter of fact. But what John didn't get is God's exact timetable and timing of it. All the things John said would happen will happen. In fact, one of them has happened, right? Baptism of the Holy Spirit has happened, but it happened after John died. So what what is the threat to John of tripping up? Well, if John were to say, no, it has to happen on my timetable, then he trips. But if he submits to God and says to God, all right, I see that you are doing what you said you would do. I see you are doing what you want to do, and you are Lord. And you write the calendar. I don't. And so I submit to your writing of the calendar. I submit to your pace. I submit to your program. Well, then he doesn't trip. Do you follow me? The tripping up would be if he insisted on his own way. And that is where people leave Christianity, I should say. I don't believe there is any such thing as an ex-Christian. They just show that they never were Christians. When it comes to the place where God crosses their will and they say, well, I'm done. Because actually the first thing you do when you become a Christian is what? you deny yourself. So you don't have a will to be crossed in that sense. You've given it to God. And if a person still has a will that can be crossed, he hasn't become a Christian if that's final to him. So John doesn't. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not trip over me. Well, let me ask you a question, real question, not a rhetorical question. What's the opposite of of stumbling? Walking, standing. Standing. Think of Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul warns us that there's a spiritual battle, the powers in the heavenly places. And what does he tell us we need to do? Put on the armor of God. Well, you you got ahead of me, you're exactly right, but we need to put on the armor of God. And why do we need the armor of God? So that we can stand. And he says that several times. So I take from that that standing is a big deal. (laughs) That if it weren't for that armor, we would be flat on our back, belly up to the sun, we would stumble. It's the armor of God that will make us stand. And so what Jesus wants for John here is to stand. And how will John stand? Well, he'll put on the armor of God. He'll get back to the word of God. He'll trust it. He'll submit to God's lordship, as in fact he does. So, uh, blessed is the one who does not, is not tripped up over me. So these are the trials of a godly leader. And now let's turn Roman numeral 2 to Christ's praise of a godly leader. Christ's praise of a godly leader. And I'm going to start with the last verse in this section, verse 11, and speak of its heights, H-E-I-G-H-T-S, heights. You will see why I do this in just a moment, if you remain in the car. Verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one is not risen among those born of women greater than John the Immerser, Yet he who is smaller in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. Now we're going to to focus on that part next week, Lord willing. It's my intent. The second part about the kingdom of the heavens. But now focus on the first part. One has not risen among those born of women greater than John the Immerser. Now marvel at who says this. This is not so. Suppose you're reading a, a, a blurb on a book you're thinking of buying, and you see some names. You see John MacArthur. You go, "Oh, that's cool." You see maybe Ligan Duncan. You think, "Okay, he's a good guy." And you see some other names, and then suppose, just suppose, it's, it's my illustration, so I can put anything on it I want. Suppose you see all these names, and then you then you see this is a really great book. You need to get this. Jesus. Well, now that would be a pretty good commendation, wouldn't it? You'd think, I need that book if it were real, but it's my illustration and it's not real. But that's what Jesus says of John. Jesus says John is the greatest born. There's nobody greater than he born of women. He commends his leadership. Doesn't that interest you? This is what Jesus says is a really great leader. Well, what is it that makes him a leader? And And think of when he says it, i don't miss this. He says this right after John is asked this question, revealing that he's in a trial, but John knows how Jesus excuse me, Jesus knows how John is handling that trial and who John is, and still he says this it's not you, to be a great leader, obviously you don't have to never go through trials or be rocked by things. That's not a quality of a great leader, necessarily, because it's Jesus who praises John like this and um The thing I want to ask is is I want to ask why. So what I mean, isn't that exactly what we want to know? We've we've been so disappointed by leaders lately, over and over and over again. In the church, in politics, it doesn't matter. We've just seen people crumble. Sometimes before, nothing. Bad news cycle, fad, whatever. And boom, they're gone. So Jesus says, This is a great leader. Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus says? Makes for a great leader. Somebody say, Yes, I'd like to know that. You know what? You're in great luck because that's exactly what Jesus shows in the verses that come before this. Jesus is going to tell us. Now, but what is it that, that, that makes him think so well of John? Is it his sleek style? Is that what does it? This is a guy who wears camel hair and eats bugs. It's not his sleek style. Is it his smooth, charismatic way of handling people? He calls religious leaders brood of vipers when they come to him instead of treating them all collegially and nuanced and and fancy. So uh, it's it's not any of the things that we often uh, admire in people that draws Jesus, obviously. Is there something there that we can look at and hope to cultivate? Yes, indeed there is. So let's look now together at its grounds. So verse 11 is the conclusion. Verses 7 through 10 show us why Jesus says this. And to bring this out, Jesus asks not one question, not two questions, but three questions. And from them we learn. First, a godly leader is immune to the world's winds. Verse 7, he is immune to the world's winds. And as these men were going, Jesus began to say to the crowds concerning John, Well, what did you come out into the desert to observe? A reed being shaken by the wind? So let's look at Christ's question together, what he's asking. I just think of the picture. The reed, so you, here's, here's the River Jordan, and here's all these reeds hanging over the bank, and a, a wind blows from the east, and the reeds sway to the west. And then another wind blows from the west and the reeds sway to the east. And that is exactly what Jesus says John isn't. He isn't blown about by every breeze that comes along. Uh, a reed is proverbial for weakness and frailty. First Kings fourteen fifteen. the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. It's something that doesn't have its own spine, so to speak. It's frail and can be blown in every direction. That's the picture there. So let's talk about the irony of Jesus asking this question. He says, what did you come out to the desert to see? A reed being shaken in the wind? Where's the irony? Well, if he were such a reed, he would still be in the desert to be seen. But where is he? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he's not a reed. Because the wind of Herod's and Herodias' wrath did not blow him. He said, God said this is sin. He knew it infuriated them, and he said, let me expand on that. God says this is sin. He is not blown by the wind of threats or of fashion or anything else. He's not a reed. He's a redwood. Were he a reed, he wouldn't be in prison. In fact, who did you go out in the desert to see, Jesus asked, John's never going to see the desert again. His beloved open horizons and open spaces, those are over for him. He will die in prison. Why? Because he's not a reed. Because he couldn't be blown this way and that. And and before we pass this, just think of how kind it is for Jesus to start here. Because many... Critical people would say, oh, but that's just what John is doing. He's, he's being swayed by the wind if he's asking you this question, but Jesus sees beyond that. He's not really. No, he's not. No, he's not. And he says this kind thing about John. Well, that's Christ's question. Now let's talk about our application. What is there in this that will teach us? Well, let me ask you, what sorts of winds are there that could blow us here or there from our commitment to Christ? First turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, for one of them. Matthew 10, 34 through 36. So you see, well, we just studied that. Yes, we did. And so Jesus says here in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, that's rough. That's rough when your family opposes your commitment to Christ. Some of us know exactly what that feels like. It's rough when they mock, when they don't understand, when they criticize, when they're kind of constantly putting pressure on you. It's even rougher still if we've shared faith with someone in our family, whether it be a spouse, a parent, a sibling, and that person turns away and falls away from Christ, wants us to fall away too. This is rough. This pulls at us if we love our family and are close to our family. Well, what do we do with that wind? Do we just follow them away? Do we Are we, are we rocked off of our own conviction because of theirs? You know, sometimes a pastor has... Uh, young children brought for baptism, and that's a, a very difficult and compl- uh, complicated situation if you're a faithful pastor. And one of the things that I've asked young children, uh, younger children who come for baptism, is I, is I say, well, try to suppose, I know this is horrible to think about, but suppose everyone in your family, even your mom and dad, were to deny Christ and turn away from Christ. What do you think you would do if that happened? And usually when I ask that, that thought's obviously never occurred to the person I'm asking. But that's what baptism says, isn't it? Baptism says, I'm dying to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I have died to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I've risen to life with Christ. Though none go with me, still I will follow, right? So, somebody wants to be baptized. What would happen then if the people you love most were to turn their back on Christ? Would you go with them? What if your girlfriend, who, who starts out being a Christian, but it turns out that her commitment is not really that deep and not really that real, and she wants to go places you don't want to go, or your boyfriend, or you get fooled to the point of marriage. And now, then it turns out that that spiritual commitment wasn't really there. It was just to get the trout in the creel. or I guess in Texas, I better say the bass in the creel. Uh, <laughs> I'm revealing my roots here. Well, what do you do then? What does that wind do to you? Do you bend? Well, the quality of leadership is leadership is not... Swayed by winds like family, turning against or opposing. Oh, look at Matthew 24:12. Here's another one. a powerful wind. Jesus talking about the times to come. In verse 12, he says, "And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." Now, what is lawlessness? It doesn't just mean bad things. It means complete disrespect for God's law. Complete disrespect for any of God's standards. It's everywhere, in everyone. It's all over the place. And he says, when that happens, what? The love of many will grow cold. Why? Because you're the only one now. It seems like absolutely nobody even understands what you're talking about. And so what do you do then? Does the wind blow you over? Or do you say, if I'm the only one, then I'm the only one. But I know what God's word says, and I'm not shifting from it. I'm not going to stumble. God is true, though all men be liars. Amen? Are we living in such a time? And are people's love growing cold because they see everywhere that the preaching and the believing of the word of God is mocked, even by those who used to have a reputation for soundness. Oh, but you see... A leader, the kind of leader that Jesus calls a leader, doesn't bend with every breeze that comes along. What's another kind of breeze? Well, Ephesians 4.14, and I'll just, I've given you my translation from when we studied through Ephesians, And our goal growing as Christians is that we should no longer be infants being waved, tossed, and carried about by every wind of doctrine in the trickery of men in cunning for the strategy of error. What's the wind here? Fads. Fads of doctrines. The woke Gospel. The intersectional Gospel. The emergent Gospel. The this, the that. All these hyphenated Gospels. Uh, polished and modernized and and made exactly suitable to the world today. And that's where all the cool kids are. Don't you want to be with the cool kids? And the leader says, no, not really. I, I want to be with the kingdom of God. I want to be under the lordship of Jesus. I want my feet, both of them, on the unchanging word of God. I don't want to be blown with every wind. that, And the winds will come. They will always come. But... And that doesn't shake the sort of person Jesus calls a leader, as John was a leader. So those are the kinds of winds that can blow us around. Now let's talk about, just for a moment, what will keep us from blowing? What is it that will give us stability and strength? Uh, Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I I love these verses. I could just camp out on these verses with you forever. But Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Well, I love Colossians for that matter, but... Verses 6 and 7, Paul writes to this church he'd never met in person who were being troubled by a false teacher who's trying to get them to be discontented with Christ and trying to get them to go running after the latest, greatest, mixed up and mixed and matched revelation of God. And so he says in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. There's so much in those words. But how did you receive Christ Jesus? You received Him by faith. What does that mean? Well, you heard the facts about about Him. You came to realize those facts were true and then you did what? You rested yourself on that truth. You embraced that truth. You embraced Him as Lord. You bowed to His Lordship. So as you started your life, continue your life the same way, embracing Jesus Christ in faith, walking in Him. Look rooted and built up in Him. Ah, the tree that isn't blown over is a tree with roots sunk deep and so we must have our roots sunk deep in Jesus Christ, in the unchanging person of Him who is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever, Jesus Christ. Rooted and built up in Him as, and established in the faith. Not today's version of the faith, but the faith once for all given to the saints, just as you were taught. They were taught the gospel faithfully. They were to walk in the gospel faithfully. That would keep them even in the face of this wind that was blowing across their countryside. Or look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. This again is also so very deep. Few words, but so fraught with meaning. So in the context, Peter is talking about the fact that saints can and will and do suffer for righteousness. So what can I do? He says in verse 14, if you should suffer, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Thanks for that. How do I do that? Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, the Greek says, but as Lord Sanctify Christ. Give Christ a holy place in your hearts. Give Him a holy place that nothing can break into or break over. Nothing can shatter. Put Him in a place in your heart that is central. As Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And what's your heart? It's where you do all your thinking and your deciding and your treasuring. So right in the middle of everything you are, put Jesus Christ on a throne. Amen? Isn't that exactly what He says? This is how we withstand persecution and wins. Always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The firm foundation of God's word. I am happy to tell you why I'm hopeful in times like this. And nothing's going to blow us off of that. That's what will keep us. The person in the word of Jesus Christ. So, first then we see a godly leader is not uh, is immune to the world's winds. He's immune to the world's winds. And don't you see? If we were simply to stop there, well, that's exactly what happened in so many of the failures and explosions we've seen. They've been blown over by the world's winds. Secondly, a godly leader is uninterested in luxury and celebrity. Oh boy, the ones—the first one didn't catch. The second one does. A godly leader is uninterested in luxury and celebrity. Jesus asks, but instead, what did you come out to see? A man dressed in soft garments? Look, those bearing the soft garments are in the palaces of kings. So first then, let's think about Christ's question. Think about the irony of his question. Did you come out to see a man wearing soft garments? What was John wearing? Garments of camel hair. (laughs) Was that soft? That was not soft. That was rough and scratchy. And where does Jesus say the men with soft clothes are? Where are you going to find them? In King's... Well, John was near King's palace, I guess. But where was he? He was in the king's dungeon. So you see the irony of Jesus asking this. You think you're looking for somebody with soft clothes? They're in the king's palaces, not John. And, and there's a nuance here. That word soft is often used with a connotation of effeminate, of, of feminine, of a man who is effeminate, not manly, not courageous, not bold, not leading, not brave, but, but is more acting like, like, a, like a woman than a man. Uh, and king's palaces... Would connote somebody who was a social climber, who wanted to be a celebrity, who wanted to be next to power. If he couldn't be power, he wanted to be close to power. And so uh, he says, Is that what you came out to see? Is that what you think John is? Obviously, John is not that. So what Jesus saw of value in John is that he was not that. He was not weak, and he was not a social climber. He was, he, luxury meant nothing to him. Like I said, he wore camel's clothes, and he ate locusts, and he lived in the desert. Luxury was not a thing to him. It didn't tempt him. It didn't draw him. He wouldn't give up any faithfulness so that he could cling to that. And the big trouble today, of course, is those who love their celebrity, who, who love they're positions of respect and power. And they know that if they preached or taught this or that, oh boy, they would lose those invitations. They would lose those book contracts. They would become the sort of person criticized by the people that they so want to befriend. So let's talk about our application. What, what luxury and popularity call to us? Well, you know, every one of you who, who practices Christian faith, that there are certain things in some circles that you just can't say. You just can't, you can't admit that you believe, that you stand for, or else you will be run out of it. You'll be disowned, you'll be hated, you'll be persecuted, you'll be, oh, worst of all, made fun of. Oh, no. And so we just, maybe we, do we steer around those things? Well, that is, that is the temptation here. The temptation to, uh, to uh, burnish off and, and knock off those sharp, jaggedy edges that offend people so we can be more acceptable But uh, as has been said, um, your faithfulness in the area that is most under fire at the moment is the test of your faithfulness. If you hold to nine things that nobody's arguing about, but you're going to soft-pedal the tenth that everybody's upset about at the moment, well, then that's not a good measure of our faithfulness. And John was not that person. He would not give up his faithfulness To curry favor again, if he had, he would not be in a dungeon. If he were willing to just preach about something else, he would not have been in a dungeon. But he insisted on preaching what we'll see in chapter fourteen, what drew the wrath of Herod, of uh, Herod Antipas, and of Herodias, and got him jailed and eventually beheaded. Well, we read some verses at the start of the the. Service And, and again, I, I just really encourage you, make, make sure to get here before the service starts by uh, at the latest um, 1040 when the music starts, because the whole service is of one piece. We started with a reading that set the, the, the tone for the entire worship service. Let's look at a couple of words from that, 2 Timothy chapter 4, because this affects all of us. We might read this and say, oh yeah, that's really important for a pastor to, to see. Well, let me show you that it actually has a bearing on every one of us. I won't reread what we had read earlier, but let's focus on verses three and four. What does Paul say here? He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths into myths. Now this affects all of us because Paul says People. Now what people is he talking about? Oh, the world, right? No. He says we'll no longer endure sound doctrine. The, the world never did. The world has always hated sound doctrine. So who's he talking about when he says people will not endure sound doctrine? Professed Christians. Churchgoers. That they won't want to hear it anymore. And they will wander off and find people who will stop telling them what they don't want to hear and start telling them what they do want to hear. And what happens when that's everybody around you and you're left alone? What what impact does that have on you? you, Do you find then that really it was important to you to be part of a big crowd, to be part of the the in crowd, the the group of, of cool kids, of the people who matter, the people who seem to know what they're doing? Was it important to be seen as one of their number? Well, now they've all moved over there. What do you do? You still know that what you were hearing is true. What do you do? Well, this is one of those things that tests a leader. And it's one of the things that showed the lack of leadership of many of the people who've fallen over the, uh, over the well, really the history of the Christian church, but a whole lot recently. So what can we do that would immunize us to that pull? Well, there we need to go back to the verses before and after this. So look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Look at what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And then he says, preach the word. And what he says to Timothy has a bearing on every last one of us. Say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. Are, are you a husband? Are you a parent? Do you have friends? Well, we all have positions where we matter to other people. And so what sways us? Well, what does Paul do here with Timothy? He says, I want you visually to put yourself in the throne room of God on that day when you are about to be judged by God for what you did with your life. It's eternity you stand before, not the moment's fad. Not the moment's uh, Uh, passing fancy not the poll that was just taken or will be taken tomorrow but eternal judgment of God and the kingdom of God and in light of that standing there what will you wish you'd done today in light of that judgment which is absolutely certain how will you wish you had responded to today's temptation put yourself in that mindset and then preach the word And then verse 5 he adds, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Ah, yes, Timothy had a unique ministry, but we all have a ministry. We all have a ministry. Every believer, every Christian believer has a ministry given by God. And to fulfill it, we have to not be swayed by a desire for luxury or celebrity, by a need to go with the crowd We need to most of all focus on pleasing the Lord and think about the eternal judgment of God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, secondly then, a godly leader is uninterested in luxury and celebrity. Third, a godly leader is content to embrace God's call. Verses 9 and 10. But rather, what did you come out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one exceeding a prophet. This is he concerning whom it has been written. Look, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Talking about the prophecy prophecy in Malachi, the prophesy in Malachi, uh, Malachi chapter 3. And so... He says, did you come out to see a prophet? Well, yes, you did, and, and you did see a prophet. In fact, you saw more than a prophet. Well, he, he was not the prophet, uh, Deuteronomy 18, not, not the Messiah, but he was sent before him as a forerunner. and He was more than a prophet. How was he more than a prophet? Well, for one thing, he was more than a prophet in that he was an object of prophecy himself. He, his ministry was prophesied about in Malachi 3. And and echoed in Isaiah as well. Uh, But beyond that, he was more than a prophet because he didn't simply talk about God. He actually literally went in the presence of the Messiah. He actually stood before Messiah and announced Messiah who was present, who had come, announced him to Israel. But we need to turn to the Gospel of John to see even more about what John the Immerser, Gospel of John the Prophet, To see, I'm sorry, John the Apostle, to see more about what was in the heart of John the Immerser. Turn to John chapter 3, and I'm just going to focus with you on verses 26 through 30 for a moment. And you will see there what was great about the heart of this one who was a prophet and more than a prophet. We'll look at verses 26 through 30. So John's disciples come to John and they say, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Who's that? That's Jesus. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, that's him, The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He wasn't the star of the show. He wasn't the groom. He was the best man. And he was happy to be the best man. They were trying to get him to feel bad because everybody was going to Jesus. And John wouldn't. (laughs) John wouldn't. Because he was there to point people to Jesus. And so, as the friend of the bridegroom, he rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice, but now look at the next verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. So there was his heart, and that's what made him a great prophet. He didn't lose the narrative. He did not forget who was the star of the show. Not him, but the Messiah. And so his life, he was content to embrace God's call, He was not ambitious to be the bridegroom. He was glad to be the friend of the bridegroom. He was glad to be the messenger who went before him. And that was his life and that was his witness. And that was his greatness. We're not the message. We're not the gospel. What does Paul say? For we do not preach what ourselves, but what do we preach? Christ Jesus as Lord. And so do we all. And so must we all. This is the Spirit. And so Paul says this. I'll close with reading to you Philippians through 21 in the LSB. Paul speaks of my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life was about Christ. It was about serving Christ, about glorifying Christ, about lifting Christ up, and preaching Christ to others. Is that something that's the call exclusively of a a pastor? Or is that something that's the call of all of us? It's the call of all of us to preach Christ, to live for Christ, and to have this attitude that in all things Christ be magnified whether I live or whether I die. With that spirit then, We're ready to be leaders, unswayed by the world's winds, unaffected by desire for luxury or fame, and content to embrace God's role for us that he's made us for. So to lead in a way that pleases Christ in our little spheres, we need to expect and embrace that trials will come our way. We need to to, uh, encounter them with our Bibles in our hands and in our hearts, set not to stumble. We need to set our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, unswayed by the winds of the world, our only ambition to see Christ glorified, determined to learn, to live, and to do the Word of God. Amen. Now let's just take a moment. I'll give you a moment to... Pray about this, finish taking notes, or jot down something that's an action item. Just a few moments of prayer and reflection so that we can do the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking your word to us through your Son. We pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to heed and act. Thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.